our holy God. We thank you for another Sabbath day where we can gather together to hear your word and sing your praises, call upon your name, receive Christ at the table and be blessed by you. God, it is a privilege to be called out of the world one day in seven. It's a privilege to be named among your people and summoned to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's a privilege to be able to sing of the deep, deep love of our Lord Jesus who has ransomed us by his cross. We deserve none of these privileges, but you have saved us by your grace. You've shown us mercy that we will never fully fathom. And you have turned us into true worshipers through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for loving us and making us your own. God, not just at what you've done for us, but we stand amazed just at who you are. So we want to adore you. One God in three persons. Unchanging and unchangeable. Having no parts, having no passions. Unable to be acted upon, but acting upon all. Dependent upon none, but all dependent upon you. Happy and blessed in none but yourself, and also the source of all blessedness and happiness for your creatures full of glory that cannot be added to or subtracted to, and yet making all things glorious in time by your grace, higher than all, majestic in power, holy, 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 and yet in Jesus Christ humbly coming to save us from our sins. There are none like you. There has never been anyone like you. There will never be another one like you, and so we worship you, our holy God knowing that you are our God by grace alone, we come to you humbly, but boldly, by, by your command, we approach the throne of grace to make known our request. We are weak and we need your help. And so for Christ's sake, because of his merit and his intercession on our behalf, because he has made us yours, we ask you to bless and help us. Father, bless the elders of this church. The three of us are weak and needy men. We're not special. We're not super Christians. We are sinners in need of grace. Oh God, who is sufficient for the task of holding the hand of your bride and walking them home to glory? Who is sufficient to preach the word of God in all its richness? Who is sufficient to declare the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding? Who is sufficient to teach with perfect patience and humility and gentleness and boldness all the days of our life? Who's sufficient to lead your people while never neglecting family and and always doing things in order according to how you've ordered our lives? Who's sufficient to suffer for Christ in a way that honors him at all times? Not us. We're weak. So please help us. Help us to be like the Savior and lead these people for whom Christ has died. Have mercy on us and help us. Help us to love. Help us to teach. Help us to set an example. Help us to win souls. Help us to shepherd the flock of God that is among us and be faithful so that we might receive the crown that is promised to faithful ministers. Bless and keep the elders of this church. Command of us what you will and give grace that we might obey your commandments. Lord, please have mercy on Pastor Stephen. You know that his work schedule has changed and is now more difficult for the foreseeable future and and, and very unknown, uncertain. Help him to bear it well and help him to learn how to order his life, his marriage, and his ministry properly with this new change. Have mercy on him. And have mercy on Pastor David. Grant him a new position at work. Grant that he would be home more. 
Grant that he would be able to serve more among us with less stress. And God, please bless him and Maria as they prepare for a second child and all the difficulty that can come with that. And, and Lord, I pray that you would bless him today as he preaches the word. You know his struggle. You know that he's weary and tired. Energize him by your spirit that he might preach. Have mercy. We ask also that you would bless other faithful elders in our area. We ask for your blessing on pastors Gary Chaffins, Brad Brandt, Mike Mounts, Chris Euler, John Gowdy, Robbie Day, Brian Evans, Jesse Cook, and their fellow elders in their respective churches and make them fruitful. Bless their churches. We're not the only church in Scioto County. Let them see souls won to Christ. Let the members of their churches grow in love for Jesus and for one another. And Lord, I know that there must be more faithful men than these. I just don't know who they are. And so we ask that you would bless and make fruitful the ministries of every single faithful minister among us. Lord Jesus, you are Lord of the harvest. Help your workmen to harvest many for your sake and send more laborers into the harvest so that you might receive the fullness of the reward for your suffering. Bless and keep your churches. And for those ministers and churches who are not faithful, we ask that you would grant repentance and reformation. Do whatever must be done. Destroy ministries. Let darkness come to the light. Tear down churches and replace them. Do, do whatever must be done that Christ would be honored in every church in this region. Grant that your people would grow sick of empty teaching and entertainment. Grant that your people would see legalism for the heresy that it is. Grant that your sheep, wherever they are, would repent and work reformation in your churches. And if there is no change that can be wrought, bring your people out from among them that they might be brought to faithful churches. Take care of your sheep. Purify your worship. Purify your people. Purify your church. We ask also that you might grant many to be saved in Scioto County. God, this place is dark and full of wickedness. But holy God, you are able to do anything. You speak light and there is light. You speak life into the hearts of men and they live. Who can raise these dead bones? Lord, you know. So we ask that you would please do that among us. And open the eyes of sinners to the glory of the crucified and risen Christ. From soccer moms to prostitutes. From doctors to drug dealers. From the rich to the poor. From the educated to the simple. Call your people to Christ. Do a great work among us. We beg you. Save sinners. Please. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the mothers that we have among us, for those who, would, who want to be mothers but are not. We thank you for them as well. God, help us to honor those to whom honor is due. And for those who have mothers that are dishonorable, I pray that you would help them to obey the fifth commandment anyway. Oh God, this thinking about moms and all of this can be a great joy or it can be a great hardship and so I pray that you would bless each one and give grace to each one as they need but God we do thank you for faithful mothers who raise their children alongside faithful fathers or maybe by themselves but they raise their children to know and fear the Lord we thank you and we ask that you would make their ministries within their homes fruitful that they might lead their little ones to the Savior have mercy God 
And we ask now that you would bless us today as we sit under the ministry of your word. Bless Pastor David as he preaches. Lord, speak through his mouth to our hearts and plant your word deep in us. By your spirit, make the word profitable and effectual to our salvation. And help us to really hear and to believe whatever you've revealed in your word. Have mercy on us today and do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's been quite a while since I have um, been in this pulpit to preach. I've actually been praying all week that uh, this sermon would be received well and it would be an encouragement to you all. Um, however, I want to be honest. Uh, this was one of the hardest times I've had writing a sermon. And um, I, was, I, I learned something in that when we pray and we say, Lord, your will, but not mine, this morning is a, is, a, is a morning that this is not what I want. But we know that the Lord is sovereign. We know that in good providence, what I have here is what we need to hear. So all praise be to God, and uh, I hope that this is beneficial for us. So this morning, the topic that we're going to be talking about is one that many of you have brought to me in conversation before. It's one that many of you have told me you wish you were better at and one that many of us wish that we were all more confident in, and that would be apologetics. Now, my goal this morning isn't to give you the most cutting-edge, intellectual, and stalwart arguments for the faith. I would love to go over some of the greatest arguments for the faith sometime. I've always actually wanted to uh, create some type of program for all of us to learn how to handle uh, debate, handle objections, uh, but that is not what we're going to be doing this morning. Instead, I want us to see the biblical origins of apologetics. I want us to take a look at scripture and to build our understanding of what apologetics really is from scripture. Now, I know many of us have heard of or already have a decent understanding of what apologetics is, but I think a good place for us to start is to define what apologetics is. And simply put, apologetics is literally defense of the faith. The Greek word apologia means defense, as a lawyer gives at a trial. So in a very simple way, apologetics is defending our faith. Now, the reason I've chosen this topic, I think that many of us have misconceptions about what apologetics is. And I'm sure many of us already have some type of person in mind when this topic comes up. We think of the apologist in front of the big crowd who answers hard questions and he gives counter questions someone who's highly educated, who's theologically trained, who has multiple degrees behind him. And though this isn't wrong, and surely these apologists are an absolute blessing to the church universally, I think this perception of what it means to do apologetics has accidentally created some misconceptions in our minds. And I think these misconceptions have changed our actions to the point that many of us, and in the universal church at large, do not engage in apologetics. Misconceptions like, well, I don't know enough to engage in apologetics. I think that the apologists have skewed how we view apologetics 
and we look at apologetics as if it's this field that is only dealt with by super Christians, as if it's some type of branch of Christian special forces or something. We say that I don't have the education, I don't have the degree that they have, I don't know all the fancy words and all the fancy arguments that they do, so I'm better off not to say anything and to avoid looking stupid. And we think that for the normal, everyday Christian, we don't have to participate in apologetics, right? We're going to leave that to the big guys. It's up to them. Or maybe a misconception we draw from apologetics is a negative one. Maybe some of us view apologetics as an intellectual exercise for the arrogant, for those who have too much pride and just like to argue. And we don't want to look like someone who's proud and arrogant, and instead we choose to avoid engaging in apologetics altogether because we don't want that label or that stereotype. But the biggest reason I believe that many of us, especially the evangelical church in America, do not engage in apologetics is due to fear. Fear of looking like the Bible thumper. Fear of losing friendships. Fear of ruining family relationships and get-togethers. Here's a big one. Fear of workplace retaliation and getting dragged into HR. Maybe we just have a general fear of conflict. Maybe we fear that our opponent is smarter than us and we're just going to look dumb. Or it's just simply, we do not want to be ridiculed by the people you know, you work with, and that you love. I believe the main reason we do not engage in apologetics has to do with our fear. And those misconceptions and maybe some others that aren't listed may play a role but I think fear is our biggest problem. So to tackle some of, these some of these misconceptions, to address our fear of engaging in apologetics, and to understand what apologetics is biblically, we're going to take a look at the text that started it all. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verses 13 to 17. However, our actual text that we're going to be looking at uh, starts at 15. Now, the reason I'm having us back up a few verses uh, is because verse 15 starts in the middle of a sentence. I don't know why. I was thinking about that all week. Um, and to start there would be awkward. And to, uh, to, remove, to, to start there kind of removes the holistic thought that uh, the Apostle Peter is trying to get to us here. Now, I want to say that this is a text that is uh, very near and dear to my heart. As a baby Christian who hadn't even heard the word theology before, Stumbling upon this text fundamentally changed my perspective on what it meant to live as a Christian. This text is one that I have never forgotten. It's one that I try to teach my students in Sunday school. And it's a text that I try to stress to pretty much any believer that I become friends with. And it's one that continually pushed me to begin to study, especially in theology. These verses, being 15 through 17, are going to tackle the origins and teaching of what it means to do apologetics. But before we jump in, I want to show us the context in which our passage takes place in the book of 1 Peter. What we're reading is the first epistle by the Apostle Peter, written to believers in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, which today is Turkey. And Peter is writing to believers living under Roman control, who live in a Greco-Roman culture that is often incredibly hostile to Christians. Peter wrote this letter in Rome during the reign of Nero, 
And he, brand, and he wrote it to bring teaching and encouragement to these believers that are in Asia Minor. Now, I would argue that the overall purpose of Peter's entire letter was to tell them, stand firm in the faith, even in the midst of persecution and trials. And these faithful Christians stood out in a Greco-Roman culture around them, and their faith was under threat. These Christians often faced verbal abuse, insults, slanderous accusations, beatings, social ostracism, mob violence, discrimination, and at times, physical abuse by Roman authorities and local police. They were often charged and questioned by their culture around them and the Roman authorities because of their faith. So to put it simply, they suffered persecution because of their faith. Now, I've heard people tell me that sometimes they, they have a hard time seeing how something written thousands of years ago is relatable to them today in regard to the Bible. Well, I can tell you that a letter like this is one that I think is very relatable for us today. It gives us a glimpse as to what these Christians were facing in Asia Minor. And I'm not saying that our current situation is exactly the same as these believers. But as I watch the cultural landscape and guess our trajectory, I find this letter to be one that is incredibly relatable, and I think it's one that we ought to pay a lot of attention to. It was actually within just a few years of the date that this letter was written that the uh, Roman Emperor Nero went on to launch a barbaric campaign against Christianity, making him known as one of the most ruthless emperors of Rome because of his treatment of uh, Christians. So as Peter is writing to these believers in Asia Minor, this is what's been going on, and this is what he has in mind. These believers did not conform to the values and the worldviews of their present Greco-Roman culture. They lived in an evil hostile culture. So it is in this letter that Peter addresses these believers with instruction and encouragement. And for the sake of time, I'm going to actually paraphrase just some key points that I see in chapters 1 and 2 that actually are pertinent to our understanding in chapter 3. So in chapter 1, Peter calls these believers elect exiles. He reminds them that they are a chosen people from God and a people who live in spiritual exile longing for their true home that is to come. That they are a people within a people, a people that transcends geographic, socioeconomic, ethnic, and generational circumstance. And he goes on to explain how they are to live as exiles in a culture that is hostile to them. And starting in chapter 2, this ending in chapter 4. But in chapter 2, 11 through uh, 312, he tells them how they are to live in a culture that rejects them and their message. He says to do this by winning the respect of the unbelieving by their conduct and to live their faith in ways that testify to the validity of the gospel because it is a witness to, what, to a watching world and that by their conduct they, were bear, they will bear witness to the gospel. But in chapter 2, uh, verses 21 through 24, he reminds us of a hard truth. And he says that suffering is inevitable. He reminds them of Christ's suffering, that Christ suffered for us, and we will suffer for him, for righteousness' sake. And he explains to them that our righteousness is born out of our devotion for Christ, and it will bring opposition and suffering. And he encourages them to entrust themselves to God and to instead 
continue to live for Christ. So it is in this immediate context of suffering and our devotion for Christ that we now come to our text. So if you are willing and you are able, would you please stand for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Now who is there to harm you if, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And this is where our focus will be. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you now. Uh, we ask that you would give us insight into your word. Work on our hearts to make us see the command that you give us to always be ready to defend our faith. I ask that you would give us all courage and that this church would be filled with believers who are unashamed to share and defend their faith, especially when questioned or attacked. I ask that you would bless this time and may our time this, this morning be glorifying to you. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we jump into our passage, I want to point out that when I read scripture, in my mind, uh, I often read it as a skeptic. What I mean by that is that I read verses that teach or command us to do something, and my mind immediately wants to ask why, or well, what does that mean, or how does that make sense? So as a heads up, uh, my plan for this was to kind of break certain parts of each sentence down and to stop and question them as we make our way through the passage. Uh, and, and just in case we've already forgotten, we're looking to address misunderstandings about apologetics, to address our fear of engaging in apologetics by looking at scripture and building our understanding of what apologetics is from scripture. So with all that said, we'll go ahead and dive in. Our passage takes place in a portion of scripture where Peter is encouraging these believers in their suffering and in their devotion to Christ. It's actually a section that shows us and it, it's, it's explaining what it means to suffer for righteousness sake. And Peter tells them, uh, this is in 13 and 14 before, um, that if you are to suffer for your faith, that you will be blessed. And he tells them, do not fear or be troubled by those who are trying to harm you. Now, when we come to verse 15, we see that 15 is predicated upon 13 and 14. So it's in this idea of those that are trying to harm you. And he's telling them, you have no need to fear. Okay. Um, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So in the previous chapters, Peter is actually uh, explaining to them that it is by their conduct that they win the respect of the unbelieving culture that's around them, um, that they are to live their faith in ways that validate the gospel. But then we see here in this verse, he mentions the heart. He says, in your hearts, 
right? So this brings up and this shows us that it's not only about our conduct, but Peter is actually now focusing on the spiritual devotion and the heart posture. And he tells us we are to honor Christ as holy. Now, when I see this, I immediately want to ask, well, how do we do that? Okay. Part of our answer is already in this verse. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I think there's something to be said about that. So many times, uh, especially as Christians, we uh, will, not that we're irreverent, but we don't always see Christ as highly as we ought. We don't always have that esteem for him. And when we're being told to honor him as holy, I think it, made, it, it should make us sit, it should make us think um, about what it means. I don't know where I was going with that, I'm sorry. Anyway, here's another thing, though. I think when we're asking the question, honor Christ as holy, he shows us in the next part of this verse. He says, by always being prepared to make a defense for our hope. So always being prepared means that we must know what we believe and why we believe it. A good way to maybe think about this is that uh, as, an MM, as an MMA fighter continues to train over and over, he does not have an actual fight to go and fight with. But nevertheless, he's always ready. He's always training. So whenever he gets that call, he's prepared. We must always know and be ready. And this tells us that we can't have a borrowed faith, that we can't have easy believism. Something that I, when I speak to Christians quite often, and I ask them why they are a Christian, a very common uh, answer that I get to that is that, well, that's just how I was raised. And to me, that is not a genuine faith. That is not a saving faith, but this is a borrowed faith. It's something you've inherited from your mother and from your father. And in relation to what Peter is telling us, that we must always be able to give a defense, this calls that into question. I think something that this, that this verse tells us is that we must be intellectuals. And that this is a command that's not necessarily something that is optional. I think for many of us, uh, especially in the evangelical church in general, uh, we seem to put all the emphasis about knowledge and what we understand about the faith on pastors themselves. And when we are asked, we don't know. We just say, well, go ask him. But for Peter, Peter is telling us, no, we have to know for ourselves. We must be able to give some type of argument as to why we are Christians, why we believe in the hope that we do. And as we're thinking about what it is that our hope is, which is clearly Jesus Christ believing in the gospel, this is the only thing that we can place our hope in, there's something to be said that in using apologetics, evangelism and apologetics should go hand in hand. In using apologetics, my goal is to not just be someone who wins an argument, but my goal is to actually funnel them and segue to a place where I can actually teach them the gospel. We are to defend our faith and to provide reasons for our hope using scripture, using history, using philosophy, 
yet Peter tells us that we have to do it with gentleness and respect. So knowing what we believe and why we believe it is not nearly enough. We must be able to explain what our hope is in a way that is winsome, because our goal is to convince. Now we have to ask, what does it mean when we read gentleness? I would say that it's not a lack of strength, but it's actually strength that is under control. This is how we deal with them. This is how we speak to people that may be incredibly hostile to us. It's kind of like in a, in a way that I restrict my strength in the way that I play with my daughter when we're home, right? We're not incredibly aggressive, but we try to be gracious. We try to be winsome. Something I think that uh, I have encountered in many different times of, of just speaking with people and having these apologetic conversations is I realize that I get annoyed with people that I used to be. And it reminds me of who I used to be. And what this does is it tells me you need to be more gentle, you need to show more grace. And then it kind of makes me laugh for the fact that that used to be who I was. Now, the other part of this is respect. Now, this word in Greek uh, can be translated more literally as fear. And it's not a fear of a hostile culture that is around them. That's not what Peter's telling them. But it's actually a fear of Christ. What I mean by that is that our defense should be given as though we are keenly aware of the fact that God is watching. That should make us check our hearts. It should make us be considerate, more gracious, more loving, more truthful, because we are not here to be jerks that just want to win arguments and pound our chests. But our goal is to convince. So Peter moves on in verse 16, and he says, Having a good conscience... So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. So how do we have a good conscience? Well, I think we see that in the, in the verse before that. And that is, if our defense is done with gentleness and respect, we will have a clear conscience. If it was winsome, if it was loving, if it was truthful, we can have a clear conscience. And to point out as well, this is a heart that is honoring or in seeking to honor Christ. But in this verse, Peter gives us another hard truth. He tells us that we will be slandered and that we will be reviled. Many times you can have conversations with someone, and just for simply believing and stating basic Christian truths, you will be slandered. You're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're hateful. They will revile you. That's because the darkness hates the light, but it's a reminder to us that this is normal. We must prepare for it. I think if you look at our entire culture, you can kind of feel a, uh, a temperature that is rising. For basic Christians to just live as a basic Christian is continually more and more offensive to a hostile culture that we live in. Now, there is an element of a them versus us here in this text, and that's... As I mentioned earlier, Peter understands, and he tells them, you are elect exiles. You are the people of God who live within another people. You are called to be in the world, but not of it. And these believers that are in Asia Minor, and for Christians today, they challenge the righteousness of the culture. 
And you can't have two standards of righteousness, which is where so much infighting and so much slander comes from. Something that's interesting, uh, the word defend that we have in verse 15, I know I I kicked back for a second, but I did want to relay this to you. Um, The word that we have for apologetics comes out of verse 15 that says that we must have a defense. The word is apologia, and that's how we understand apologetics, and it's from that verse that we actually have that entire field of study. But something I think this shows us is that apologetics is not a tool to make people like us or accept us. And the reason why I say this is because I think some people, many of us, have this idea that if we can formulate the argument well enough, if we can make it sound good enough, that this will inherently mean that we, were, that we will win them over. But I want to point out that from these passages, it shows us that apologetics is inherently combative. Because again, you have two standards of righteousness that are going against each other. So instead of being a tool that alleviates the tension with our culture, apologetics often heightens that tension. Now the hostile, at the end of this verse, says that the hostile will be put to shame. I sat and thought about this for a long time, and the conclusion that I came to on this is that they are going to be shown as liars based upon how we live as Christians if we follow these requirements and have good consciences. It will be seen by everyone else around us that when they slander and when they revile whatever their false accusations may be, that just by our conduct of living, they will know that these are lies. And this can give us a clear conscience that brings us a great amount of freedom. It's something that if you are to get pulled into work, into an HR room for saying something that is just basically Christian, but you know I have been gracious, that I have been gentle, and I have been respectful, I have no reason to truly be scared because I have no apology to make. That brings a lot of freedom for us, especially in a time when we're very scared about the dangers of what it is. But in verse 17... Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Something that I think we can understand here is that our suffering is not in vain. We have hope. Our hope is placed and found in Christ alone. And we have truth that is defined by Christ alone. So in these moments, as Peter's talking to them and revealing to them, you will suffer we can know that their suffering is not in vain. Another thing that we find here is that we are not promised a life that is free of suffering in Christ. Majority of the time, it's actually the exact opposite. I think the more that I read scripture, the more that you see the the pushback of the culture that the apostles and the early Christians in the first century lived in. It is sometimes God's will that Christians suffer for doing good. Countless Christians have suffered throughout church history. And then we have the apostles and just early church believers like Philip, Matthew, Andrew, Mark, Stephen, Peter. All of them were martyred. Martyred. 
something that it shows us is that apologetics is just inherently conjoined with suffering. And as we think about those misconceptions, where we're always concerned about the fear of ruining the friendship, of ruining the family relationship, I think it points out to us there's no way of escaping that. And it ought to push us to continue to pursue and to honor Christ anyway. Now, I knew this would be a short sermon, <laughs> but I do have a couple takeaways, maybe just some clearer thoughts on this. Peter doesn't have a group of trained philosophers in mind when he wrote this verse or this passage. But all the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with uh, special Christianity. It has nothing to do with uh, these elite people that have these high degrees, but it is for all people. He was simply instructing Christians how to live in a hostile world that is around them. We must honor Christ as holy, and we are to fear him more than we fear the culture that is around us. We must know what we believe. We, we must know why we believe it. And we must have that courage to explain our hope to others in a way that is winsome. We must accept that apologetics and suffering go hand in glove. And lastly, apologetics is rooted in humility and holiness and should be a part of every Christian walk. I think when we go through this passage, these are the things that we pull away and we take away. So with all of that said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for people that are gracious in this church. I thank you for the fact that we know that sermons are not the central theme of why we're at church. Lord, we're here to worship you. We want to give you praise. Lord, I ask that if there I ask that for the truth that was in here, that we would sit and chew on it in a way that was better than I could expound on. Lord, I thank you for a robust uh, a liturgy that shows us and points us to Christ that is beneficial to this church. And ultimately, I ask that for the rest of this day, we would bring you glory and praise. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.